Amen. Please be seated. This morning, turn in your Bibles to the book of Ruth, just a short little book, beginning of the Old Testament. The first several books of the Bible follow the chronology or the timeline, and it starts to differentiate as you get past uh, into the Chronicles and so forth, but up to this point, uh, the first five books of the Bible, then Joshua, Judges, and then Ruth. And Ruth is actually set in the midst of the period of the Judges, uh, before Israel have, has kings. And it's this time of really spiritual uh, waywardness, uh, worldliness on the part of Israel, really 350 to 400 years of, of this kind of spiritual wandering where Israel would be faithful to God for a time, but then they would begin sinning, uh, start catching on to what was going on around them and other nations. Uh, they didn't follow God's commands and eradicate those cultures from their midst and became assimilated by them. And God would, in his mercy, bring discipline upon them by allowing foreign nations to come and oppress. Then God would demonstrate his deliverance by raising up a judge, Deborah. Uh, you could think of Samson, Gideon. Raise these people up and, and give Israel release from their enemies for a time, and then, of course, the cycle would begin itself again. We're not told exactly when Ruth happens in this timeline. We know, though, it's in the period of the Judges, which is basically a spiritually dry time for God's people. Uh, one verse that summarizes the period of the Judges, actually these words appear twice in Judges, but the last verse of the book itself says, in those days there was no king in Israel, everyone did what was right in his own eyes. And this provides the backdrop for this story, this story of tragedy, spiritual struggle, broken relationships, love, redemption, and ultimately, it's a lesson in God's providence. Hear God's word, Ruth chapter 1. In the days when the judges ruled, there was a famine in the land, and a man of Bethlehem in Judah went to sojourn in the country of Moab. He and his wife and his two sons, the name of the man is Elimelech, and the name of his wife Naomi, and the names of his two sons were Malon and Kilion. There were Ephrathites from Bethlehem in Judea. They went into the country of Moab and remained there. But Elimelech, the husband of Naomi, died, and she was left with her two sons. These took Moabite wives. The name of one was Orpah, and the name of the other was Ruth. They lived there about ten years. Both Malan and Kilian died, so that the woman was left without her two sons and her husband. Then she arose with her daughters-in-law to return from the country of Moab, for she had heard that the fields of Moab, that the Lord had visited his people and given them food. So she set out from the place where she was with her two daughters-in-law, and they went on the way to return to the land of Judah. But Naomi said to her two daughters-in-law, Go, return each of you to your, her mother's house. May the Lord deal kindly with you as you have dealt with the dead and with me. The Lord grant you. May, that you may find rest, each of you, in the house of her husband. Then she kissed them, and they lifted up their voices and wept. And they said to her, No, we will return with you to your people. But Naomi said, Turn back, my daughters. Why will you go with me? Have I yet sons in my womb, that they may become your husbands? Turn back, my daughters. Go your way, for I am too old to have a husband. If I should say I have hope, even if I should have a husband, this night and should bear sons, would you therefore wait till they were grown? Would you therefore refrain from marrying? No, my daughters, for it is exceedingly bitter for me for your sake, that the hand of the Lord has gone out against me. Then they lifted up their voices and wept again. 
And Orpah kissed her mother-in-law, but Ruth clung to her. And she said, See, your sister-in-law has gone back to her people and to her gods. Return after your sister-in-law. But Ruth said, Do not urge me to leave you or to return from following you. For where you go, I will go. And where you lodge, I will lodge. Your people shall be my people, and your God, my God. Were you, to, were you to die, and there I will be buried. May the Lord do so to me, and more also, if anything but death parts me from you. And when Naomi saw that she was determined to go with her, she said no more. So the two of them went on until they came to Bethlehem. And when they came to Bethlehem, the whole town was stirred because of them. And the, woman, and the women said, Is this Naomi? She said to them, Do not call me Naomi, call me Mara, for the Almighty has dealt very bitterly with me. I went away full, and the Lord has brought me back empty. Why call me Naomi, when the Lord has testified against me, and the Almighty has brought calamity upon me? So Naomi returned, and Ruth the Moabite, her daughter-in-law with her, who returned from the country of Moab. And they came to Bethlehem at the beginning of barley harvest. Let's pray. Father, we confess with your word and about your word that it is living and active, sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing to the division of soul and of spirit, joints and of marrow, and discerning the thoughts and intentions of the heart. Lord, through this account of your work through your people, I pray that you would encourage us here gathered, that we might trust in you in a new and fresh way, and so be witnesses to this world about your sovereign grace. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. This story definitely reminds us that life is filled with inexplicable events. No way. People try, but there's no way you can explain certain things. We just don't have the insight to understand. There are inexplicable events, even for Christians. Part of why the Lord gives us such a story, and other stories like it in the Old Testament, apart from maintaining the consistent uh, theme of the promise of God to be fulfilled through a Messiah coming, and Ruth fits into that timeline for sure. The book of Esther is like that, maintaining the people of Israel so the Messiah could come. But there's a human element here that's also for us to see that there is such a thing as human tragedy, inexplicable events that fit into a bigger working of God. Now, I'm not saying, brothers and sisters, that you and I will always have answers to the tragedies that confront us. Many times we won't. But by seeing this story, we can at least get a bigger picture of the kind of way God works. This really, this book is a lesson in providence. I will take four sermons, four chapters to go through this lesson in providence. And today in particular, we see that God moves in a mysterious way. I want to say at the beginning, I'm not saying he w moves in mysterious ways like we sometimes say. I mean, Batman works in mysterious ways. Okay, God works in a mysterious way. That is a purpose. He's not reacting. He's not seeing what we'll do and then jumping in. And he moves in a mysterious way. And even human tragedy and suffering are part of this. It is God's character that comforts and builds us in the midst of inexplicable events. Uh, it's his character, it's his goodness that we see over the long haul that builds us and comforts us, not necessarily explanations to every trial we have. We have to understand this. In fact, one of my greatest, uh, uh, my favorite parts of The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe is the part that the recent movie just didn't capture quite right. They did a great job overall, but they missed this part, and it's very important because it illustrates this very point that we can trust in the character of God, and that's what gives us comfort, not necessarily explanations or comfort with who he is. And this is what 
uh, is depicted in the book. You remember Aslan is the Christ figure who's created the world. Uh, and it's about time for the children to meet Aslan. And they're asking Mr. and Mrs. Beaver all about Aslan because they're scared. They're wondering, who is he? He sounds, he sounds really, really awesome. And, and they want to know who he is. And so they begin drilling uh, Mr. and Mrs. Beaver with questions. And uh, it starts with uh, Lucy asking who it is that Aslan is. And is he a man? And the response is as follows. Aslan a man? Certainly not. I tell you, he's the king of the wood and the son of the great emperor beyond the sea. Don't you know who is the king of the beasts? Aslan is a lion, the lion, the great lion. Oh, Susan said, I thought he was a man. But is he safe? I shall feel rather nervous about meeting a lion. That you will, dearie, and make no mistake, said Mrs. Beaver. If there's anyone who can appear before Aslan without their knees knocking, they're either braver than most or else just silly. Then isn't he safe, Lucy says. Safe, said Mr. Beaver. Don't you hear what Mrs. Beaver tells you? Who said anything about safe? Of course he isn't safe, but he's good. He's the king, I tell you. You see, God's character is like that. He doesn't fit into our box. His purposes are not completely known to us, but he is good, and he is working all things for his glory. And brothers and sisters, if you are united by faith to Christ, that means he does these things for his son to whom you are united. They will ultimately be for your good, even when you can't see them. You will live 70, 80 years if you're fortunate. Maybe a touch more, just a few in this room. But you will live trillions. You will exist trillions of years in eternity. And what he's doing now is for a greater work, for his glory, to last throughout eternity. I want you to, for a moment, turn to page 851 in the back of your hymnal. We are a confessional church at Redeemer. That means that we have a confession of faith that describes what it is we believe the Bible is saying. Please understand, this is subservient to the scriptures. It's an explanation, uh, it's a summary, if you will, of what we, we think the Bible says, so that you might, might know what we, the leaders of the church, believe and what we will preach, because we believe this is what scripture says. There is a wonderful chapter, chapter 5, on page 851, with several sections. I want to read just a few of those sections as a preface to this study of Ruth, so we understand what the Bible says about this doctrine of providence. We may use the word, but I wonder if we really know what it means, and I think it would help us. Uh, there is something that is often missing in an explanation of the sovereignty of God. We talk about his predestination, about his decrees. Well, what makes this also understandable and really acceptable to us even is the doctrine of providence. This explains the personal touch of God in the execution of his decrees. There's, there's simply not a better statement of what the Bible teaches about this doctrine than the one you have before you. Listen to what it says and follow. God, the great creator of all things, doth uphold, direct, dispose, and govern all creatures, actions, and things from the greatest even to the least by his most wise and holy providence according to his infallible, infallible foreknowledge and the free and immutable counsel of his will to the praise of the glory of his wisdom, power, justice, goodness, and mercy. The second section says, although in relation to the foreknowledge and decree of God, the first cause, all things come to pass immutably and infallibly. Yet by the same providence, he ordereth them to fall out according to the nature of second causes, either necessarily, freely, or contingently. Very simply, when he makes the sun, it causes order. The sun rises, the sun 
falls in the sense of nighttime, seed time, and harvest. And he sets things in motion as first causes and then second causes necessarily fall out from them, all still under the sovereign control of God. Look at section 3. God in his ordinary providence maketh use of means, yet is free to work without, above, and against them at his pleasure. He sets certain laws in motion for sure, but he also can intervene at any time and upset those laws or, inter- in, 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 if you will, intrude. And that's what we call a miracle. Look at section 4. The almighty power, unsearchable wisdom, and infinite goodness of God so far manifest themselves in this providence that it extendeth itself even to the first fall and all other sins, sins of angels and men, and that not by a bare permission, but such as hath joined with it a most wise and powerful bounding, and otherwise ordering and governing of them in a manifold dispensation to his own holy ends, yet so as the sinfulness thereof proceedeth only from the creature and not from God, who by being most holy and righteous neither is, neither is nor can be the author or approver of sin. Now, I'm not going to tell you that I understand all that. I'm going to tell you I think it's in Scripture. I'm going to tell you that there's a point at which we say, your thoughts are not my thoughts, O God. It's in Scripture. And this is the only consistent way to just state it. Now, you'll spend your life wrestling with it, and only in heaven will God probably give us some greater insight to it. But what it does is it puts us in our proper place, recognizing who's in control. That can be a very powerful thing when understood rightly. Skip down to section 7, the last uh, section of this chapter. As the providence of God doth in general reach to all creatures. This is key. So after a most special manner, it taketh care of his church and disposeth all things to the good thereof. Now it's not so much that you and I are special, it's that Jesus is that special. And that he unites us to Christ, and so he executes things to glorify Christ. Who benefits if they're united to Christ, brothers and sisters? We do, even when we can't explain certain events. Now, with that in mind, with that backdrop, Let's consider this story. And first, the very, real, uh, the very real matter of human suffering in God's providence. Famine and death in particular we are introduced to. Just five quick verses, but I do not want to just blow through these verses because so much human tragedy is involved in those verses. So much reality is involved in these verses. Look at the first and second verse. In the days when the judges ruled, there was famine in the land. And, the, and a man of Bethlehem in Judah went to sojourn in the country of Moab, he and his wife and his two sons. The name of the man was Elimelech, which by the way means my God is king. And the name of his wife, Naomi. And the names of his two sons were Malon and Kilion. They are Ephrathites from Bethlehem in Judah. They went into the country of Moab and remained there. Now this is in the days of the judges, which I have already mentioned is a spiritually unstable, dry time with the constant cycle of sin and deliverance. It could very well be, and the Jewish commentators think, that this famine was part of one of the various disciplines God poured out on his people. So the options were very limited for families, and to go to Moab was one of the options. This was a terrible option. Uh, Moab was the, were the enemies of God. You remember their beginning comes from an incestuous relationship between Lot and his daughters. That's, that's, that's where Moab comes from. Then in New, uh, Numbers 22, Balak, the king of Moab, gets Balaam to try to curse Israel. So these are the enemies of God. This would have come with it much social stigma to actually have to move to Moab. I don't even know how to compare it today, where you would move, that people would look and say, I can't believe they went to Moab. And that's where they went, to Moab, really to try to live. Verse 3, just very simply, but so profoundly, but Elimelech, the husband of Naomi, died, and she was left with her two sons. 
Who can explain this kind of tragedy? And it happens all the time. And I have no better explanation except for the bigger explanation that we learn from this book than to say that people die because of the fall. And that's part of living in a sinful world. But I don't want us to pass over. The story is, is really focal point is on Naomi and, and her daughter-in-law. So I think that's why the author passes by this so quickly. But we're faced with the reality of human suffering in God's great providential plan. The lesson is about his providence, but don't lose that someone just died here that's near and dear to this woman and to these sons. Elimelech dies. Life then has to go on, doesn't it? It goes on, almost coldly. These sons then, we're told in verse 4, very quickly took Moabite wives. The, names of, the name of one was Orpah and the name of the other Ruth. They lived there about 10 years. So if you figure, Naomi and her husband are probably in their mid to late 30s when they move there. She's probably in her mid to late 40s at this point, And her daughters have been married for some 10 years with these, uh, with, or her uh, sons have been married with these two women. And then look what it says. It's incredible how quickly it says it in verse 5. Both Malan and Killian died. So that the woman, Naomi, was left without her two sons and without her husband. Who can explain that? Who can understand that? I, there is no explanation. And when I think of Naomi, my heart breaks for her, and I understand where she goes spiritually as a result of this. Not just her husband, but her two sons that were going to carry on the family name. And they don't even have any children, having married these women. And now she is with these two women who have left their families, and she's living with them some 10 years past the time where they could just go back very easily. She has gone there with her husband and two sons and is going to have to go back with nothing. There is a very real depiction and ex with no explanation of human suffering and tragedy. You have to ask the question, and I'm sure every one of you here at some point has asked, even if it's not personally, you've been close to someone, why do such things happen? Is God really in control? Is there a purpose for such things as famine and death? And I really think there are only a few possibilities when trying to make sense of human suffering. The first option, the first answer might be, there is no God, and there is ultimately no meaning to this life or the events that transpire. The second option is, there is a God, but he is indifferent to the sufferings of mankind in the world. Kind of the deist view, where he makes the clock and runs the clock, winds it up and lets it go, and is not passionate about anything that happens thereafter. That's a possibility you might come up with. Thirdly, there is a God, but he, he is only partially involved. God doesn't will bad things to happen. Instead, he responds and reacts to man and creation. He could stop bad things from happening, but he doesn't always do so for whatever reason. I would submit to you, by the way, that's the most prevalent concept of God today, even in the evangelical church. The fourth view, which I think is what Scripture teaches, as difficult as it may sound on the onset, is actually the best understanding of Scripture and will ultimately lead to the most blessing. The fourth view is that there is God, a God, and he is completely sovereign. He is totally proactive instead of reactive. All things serve his purpose, even human suffering and death. I would say to you that clearly the first option is not valid. It's false. God has revealed himself through the creation as well as by special revelation. We know God exists. Clearly, number two is false. The testimony of special revelation, that he would reach to us through the prophets and the apostles to speak to us in such a way and confirm by the various acts he had there performed, that he has interceded. And furthermore, he sent Jesus as a man. This is not an impersonal, indifferent God who sends his own son to die for us. Thirdly, and this is probably the position that so many take, 
And honestly, brothers and sisters, I think really what happens is people start to wrestle with the question a little bit, and then they just shut off. They don't want to answer what the real, they just don't want to deal with it. It's too complicated. I understand, I respect that in the midst of someone's pain. But it doesn't help in the long run when you continually go on with a sentimental view of God, that he just kind of reacts sort of like Superman, jumps in, jumps in the phone booth when we need help. And people say it all the time, a bad thing will happen, and you'll hear someone say, all this bad stuff was happening, and then God did this, as if he had not been doing anything otherwise. He'd been waiting, and then, and that, that's, that's a common view today. I would just say it's patently unscriptural. It leaves us with a God who is either powerless or indifferent, if you really analyze it. Because he could stop something, but he doesn't. He has the ability to intervene and stop that pain, but he just doesn't. That's the truth behind that position that is so sentimentally held by so many. But rather, if we hear the words of Scripture and leave the mystery for what it is, mystery, that his thoughts are not completely my thoughts. Here again what Ephesians 1, verse 11 says. And I think it substantiates that there is a God and he is completely sovereign. In him we have obtained an inheritance, having been predestined according to the purpose of him who works all things, according to the counsel of his will. And with that we can say with Paul, the depth of the riches and wisdom and the knowledge of God, how unsearchable are his judgments and how inscrutable his ways. In other words, we can see his judgments, but to know exactly why he does what he does, we can't know those detailed questions, answers to those questions. God ordains, that means he come, causes to come to pass, all things and circumstances, ultimately for the magnification of his glory. Seemingly random events, even down to this famine, to the death of this husband, the death of these two sons, to the return, even seemingless, seemingly random events are all determined by God, not by chance. Even though the person in the midst of it does not feel that as such, it is still the truth that works behind. God determines the outcome from the very beginning of all things, according to his pleasure. Even the creation of the wicked, we are told, and the events of calamity are of the Lord. Proverbs 16, as well as Isaiah 45. Romans 9, classic uh, telegraph on the part of the Apostle Paul as he's laying out these deep truths about election and God's sovereign choice. One would have to say, but wait a minute, that does not sound fair to me. I mean, anyone would logically say that when they hear this argument made by Paul. And then Paul in the Holy Spirit forecasts it by saying, but who are you, O man, to answer back to God? Will what is molded say to its molder, why have you made me like this? Has the potter no right over the clay to make out of the same lump one vessel for honored use and the other for dishonorable use? Paul later captures this truth when he says in Romans 11, verse 36, for from him, through him, and to him are all things. It is clear in scripture that God is completely sovereign. He is totally proactive instead of reactive. All things serve his purpose, even human suffering in death. I know well-meaning Christians may say, and I would say even in my own humanity I may have said, you mean to tell me that God predestines human suffering, death? Not my God, they'll say. But you realize the alternative, if you're really fair with it. Either God is completely sovereign and ordains such things for eternal glory, even when we can't understand it, or he stands powerlessly, indifferently, while things just happen. Let some things go, let other things not go. He intervenes as that's the other alternative. There are not, there's not an in-between picture here. Sovereign or not, that's really what we're left with. And there is great comfort as we come to rest in the fact of God's sovereignty. As the psalmist said, For I know that the Lord is great, and that our Lord is above all gods. Whatever the Lord pleases, he does in heaven and on earth, and in the seas and all the deeps. 
There is a reality of human suffering and death. I do not want to belittle it one bit. But at the same time, brothers and sisters, I encourage you to recognize the wisdom of our God that is so far beyond us. And sometimes he has us in a position of pain so that we are malleable in his hands and we can understand his grace all the more in a way that's greater than others might not. Still, I want to look humanly at the bitterness of Naomi. Instead of following the the timeline any further, let's pause for a moment and consider really the challenge of interpreting God's providence personally. I know I can say to you what our confession says and what scripture lays out, and it can sound cold, but there is a personal challenge each of us has in interpreting his providence personally. What does this mean? I know I can say this for what happened to Naomi, but if it happened to me, what would that do to me? How, How would I feel about it? What would my experience be like? And that's a valid question. In looking at uh, Naomi, we really get a picture of the bitterness that can set in as a result of what we call hard providence. Verse 13, after there's a, uh, a realization that they'd have to go back in order to get food. Uh, verse 13, look at what the insight to Naomi's heart we get. Would you, therefore wait, would you therefore wait till they were grown? Speaking of if she would have other daughters, she's really speaking kind of, she's exaggerating a bit just to say, it's ridiculous for you to stay with me. Would you therefore refrain from marrying? No, my daughters, for it is exceedingly bitter to me for your sake that the hand of the Lord has gone out against me. She recognizes, she confesses that God's providence here has caused these events. She, she confesses that, but it's bitter to her. That is, and it tastes bitter, there's no question. Uh, the problem is it starts to seep into her and it starts to take over really her thinking, which is a common issue. It's difficult for us to see the, the beads of light coming from the other side of the cloud. We see the clouds, and that's, that's where Naomi is, and everyone here at some level can relate with that. And my reaction, again, when I hear this is not judgment at first. It's I can see why she'd feel this way. I mean, wouldn't any of us, her husband and her two children, and now she's alone and has to go back basically with all the social stigma attached to this place and beg for food, essentially? It's terribly difficult for her. This difficulty is real. It's not just to be passed over. The bitterness of Naomi is understandable. Look at verse 19 down to verse 21. And you get this clear picture as she returns to this place that used to be her, her where she lived. She's in her mid-40s. So the two of them went on until they came to Bethlehem. And when they came to Bethlehem, the whole town was stirred because of them. And the women said, is this Naomi? And she said to them, do not call me Naomi. It's like she knew they were talking about her. Call me Mara, for the Almighty has dealt very bitterly with me. And Mara comes from that, that spring, if you remember, that Moses took the Israelites to, and it was bitter, and after throwing a stick in it, it became sweet. But bitterness is what she associated with herself. Call me Mara, she says. The Lord has dealt bitterly with me. I went away full, and the Lord has brought me back empty. Why call me Naomi when the Lord has testified against me, and the Almighty has brought calamity upon me? Brothers and sisters, this picture is very human, it's very real. I think all of us can understand it to some degree. She is not yet able at this point, because God has not granted it to her, that she could see the bigger picture of God's redemption really working in her life even now. I want to just ask you very bluntly as a question we would always ask as Presbyterians. What do you think of Naomi's theology? What does that do? Does it make you a little uncomfortable, Naomi's theology? Let me be real honest with you. I am far more comfortable with Naomi's theology any day over the sentimental views of God which dominate evangelical magazines and books today and half the sermons you hear. I'd much rather hear Naomi's. She's honest. She's telling it the way it is, the way it feels, like the psalmist in Psalm 22. Why have you forsaken me, Lord? 
I like the psalmist who says, how long, O Lord? I will take that any day compared to what we have going on today. Her testimony is unshaken. She needs correction. Don't get me wrong. She needs guidance. But she's on the right path because she's being honest about it. She is confessing that God exists, no question in her mind. She's confessing that God is sovereign. She sees that. And she's confessing that God has afflicted her. She understands from whose hand this comes. She doesn't understand what to do with it, but she understands it's true. So different than all the focus that we have today. I did a search at 7 o'clock this morning to find out what the top 20 books in evangelicalism were. You want to know the names of them? Now, I'm not telling you not to buy them, and I'm not dissing these people. I'm just saying these are the names. The Purpose Driven Life, everyone knows that one. What on earth am I here for? That's, that's the best one. The Maker's Diet, the 40-day health experience that will change your life forever. Experiencing God, knowing and doing his will, not bad. The Fred Factor, I don't know who Fred is, but the Fred Factor, how passion in your work and life can turn the ordinary into extraordinary. So three of the four I just mentioned all have to do with your life and making it better. That's, that's, the, that's the heart of evangelical America right now, how to make your life better. And it goes on. These are in the top 20. Look them up yourself. Having a merry heart in a Martha world, finding intimacy with God in the busyness of life. Your best life now, seven steps to living your life at full potential. I'm not saying these are sinful books, brothers and sisters. I'm just saying it shows you where we're at. I'll take Naomi's theology any day. Dare to dream, then do it. Subtitled, What Successful People Know and Do. The Difference Maker, Making Your Attitude Your Greatest Asset. That would have helped Naomi a a bunch, I'm sure. Making Your Attitude Your Greatest Asset. Look Great, Feel Great. Approval addiction, overcoming your need to please everyone. I want to ask you how helpful you think one of these books would be to one of our brothers in North Korea who hasn't eaten in three days because they claim the name of Christ. That would help them a lot to know that their attitude would be their greatest asset in that moment. I want to know how it would feel for the sister in Darfur who has lost her husbands and sons, not to mention her chastity, to read a book about what successful people know and do. Give me a break. Naomi's theology is way better than what we got going on today, and we ought to read it. It's not because we're downers, it's because we see what lifts us. And that's the providence of God, work in, our, work in our life, even in the midst of human tragedy and suffering that is so real. I'll take that theology any day. What's missing from our sister's life at this time, and all of us have experienced at some level, is a full understanding or a clear understanding of what God has revealed in Scripture over and over and over again, probably most classically with Joseph, when at the end of terrible hardship, being betrayed by his own brothers, in prison twice, and all that he went through, and there he stands before his brothers, and his life, instead of being consumed with bitterness, is wrapped up with seeing the bigger picture of God, that God gives him a glimpse of it, so we could have a glimpse of it and see what God is doing behind the scenes, so to speak. And he says, do not fear to his brothers, for I am, am I in the place of God? As for you, you meant evil against me, but God meant it for good, to bring it about that many people should be kept alive as they are today. Think of Joseph's situation. For all those years, there is no question that those brothers thought everything that was done was for evil. That was their perspective. But Joseph's perspective, as mixed up as it was throughout the way, at the end of it, he realized the real story, no matter what your perceptions are, brothers or me, Joseph, is that God intended for good what man intended for evil. That's continually the message we have in God's sovereign providence. That's the beauty of Paul's words, and Paul knew it because he lived it. So when we, so we do not lose heart, Paul says. Though our outer nature is wasting away, our inner nature is being renewed day by day. For this slight and momentary affliction is preparing for us an eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison. As we look not to the things that are seen, but to the things that are unseen. 
For the things that are seen are transient, but the things that are unseen are eternal. I take the theology of Naomi any day. There's no question. It's a matter of whether we continue to go down the road of bitterness, and that's what we have to guard against. That's what's even evidence in her life, and the Lord takes her out of it, and that's the beauty of the next chapters as we read them. There's a wonderful story, and it's a true story. In fact, uh, one of our brothers who attended Texas A&M actually knows of the story because it happened about the time uh, that he was there. There was a man, uh, a student named Bruce Goodrich. He was being initiated into the cadet corps at Texas A&M. And one night he was forced by the seniors, as is part of one of their traditions, to run a couple miles. He dropped, and he never got up. He died. He died before he even entered college. A short time after the tragedy, and this is what's so amazing, his father wrote a letter to the administration, faculty, student body, and corps of cadets. Now let me say before I read this, there's no question what that father must have felt. Terrible, terrible pain. And there's no question that he cried out to the Lord, I'm sure, why, O oh Lord? Anyone would. That's not the point. What he decided to do at some point, by God's grace, is to not let that turn into deep-seated bitterness. And instead, he sought as a bigger plan, even though he could not make out the particulars. And listen to the letter he wrote that was read at their commencement. I would like to take this opportunity to express the appreciation of my family for the great outpouring of concern and sympathy from Texas A&M University and the college community over the loss of our son, Bruce. We were deeply touched by the tribute paid to him in the battalion. We were, par we were particularly pleased to note that his Christian witness did not go unnoticed during his brief time on campus. And he goes on, I hope it will be some comfort to know that we harbor no ill will in the matter. We know our God makes no mistakes. Bruce had an appointment with his Lord and is now secure in his celestial home. When the question is asked, why did this happen? Perhaps one answer will be, so that many will consider where they will spend eternity. This is a person who took a terrible, seriously terrible situation and saw God's hand of providence even in it. Brothers and sisters, the beauty of chapter one is it does not end here. We are given a glimpse of what God does every day, every moment, conversion, redemption, the place of redemption in God's providence. We're given just a quick glimpse, but one nonetheless in the conversion of Ruth. Look at verse 6, now continuing the timeline. She rose with her daughters-in-law to return to the country of Moab, for she had heard the fields of Moab, in the fields of Moab that the Lord had visited his people and given them food. So she set out from that place where she was with her two daughters, and they went on, to the, on the way to return to the land of Judah. So Naomi takes up with her daughters-in-law. We already know what happened as Orpah goes her own way. But Ruth, what an incredible response she has. She wrestles with these two girls. She wants what's best for them. Go back, and there's this kind of exchange of pleasantries, really. We love each other, and they cry over it. But ultimately, you've got to think Orpah probably knew it would be best for her to stay. She loved her mother-in-law and cared for her, but in the end, she, did to she would have to stay. And I'm sure Ruth, or Noam, uh, Naomi thought that would be the case. But Ruth surprises her, I believe, when she says, no, I I'm staying with you. I'm not leaving. And there's something deeper about what Ruth says. Look at verse 16. Then just simply, I'm going to hang out with you just because I can, I can uh, get food off you or a livelihood off you. None of that was even possible with Naomi. But Ruth said in verse 16, do not urge me to leave you or to return from following you. For where you go, I will go, and where you lodge, I will lodge. Your people shall be my people, and your God, my God. Where you die, I will die, and there will I be buried. May the Lord do so to me, and more also, if anything, but death parts me from you. And when Naomi saw this, she was determined to go with her. She said no more. 
Listen, what she says is the Old Testament version of saying that Jesus Christ is Lord. Why? Because Ruth had been with her for 10 years. She knew the story of creation. She knew the promise of Genesis 3.15. Ruth knew the story of Noah, of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. She knew the story of Moses. She knew the story of the Exodus and the receiving of the law. She knew the tabernacle and the sacrificial system and what the sacrificial system meant and represented. She knew the story of Joshua and the conquest of the land that she was returning to. She knew that God had called a covenant people. She knew of God's constant record of deliverance and redemption for them, his people. When Ruth says, your people shall be my people and your God, my God, that means she trusts in the Savior. That means she knows who is God and her allegiance is to him. This is a beautiful picture of conversion in the Old Testament. Redemption, personally, as she sees where it is that her future lies. Through famine, death, broken relationships, God has shown something of himself to her, and she wants to be identified with him. What a beautiful way to end this chapter and go into this bigger picture of redemption that God provides. And as a side note, when you think of someone like Ruth, and I don't know what your personal background is, but I'll bet you in a group this size, some of us have some real sordid stories. Do you see that that is of no consequence to God when he redeems? None. Doesn't matter what your resume says. Doesn't matter. He cleans us from it, and he puts us in the line of the Savior. As Ruth eventually is the great-great-grandmother of David. What a beautiful picture of the ultimate lineage of Jesus, this person Ruth. I want to conclude by reading... Uh, a wonderful hymn that we will sing, hymn 128. The first phrase from God moves in a mysterious way, the first stanza says, God moves in a mysterious way, his wonders to perform. He plants his footsteps in the sea and rides upon the storm. Now, before I go further, William Cooper wrote this. It's not Cowper as it looks, it's Cooper. And Cooper wrote this in the midst of deep depression. He struggled with depression his whole life. In fact, the circumstances of this hymn are incredible. Uh, before he wrote it, he was planning to kill himself. He planned that several times. It was not successful, providentially. This last time, though, he decided he would have a cabbie drive him to a river where he would throw himself over a bridge and drown. There was a thick fog that night, and the cabbie could not find the place that he was trying to be led to and eventually let him off right in front of his own door again. Cooper went in, and the story goes that that's when he began to pen these words, God moves in a mysterious way. God moves in a mysterious way, his wonders to perform. He plants his footsteps in the sea and rides upon the storm. Deep in unfathomable minds of never-failing skill, he treasures up his bright designs and works his sovereign will. Ye fearful saints, fresh courage take. The clouds ye so much dread are big with mercy and shall break in blessings on your head. My favorite verse of, of the hymn Judge not the Lord by feeble sense, but trust him for his grace. Behind a frowning providence, he hides a smiling face. His purposes will ripen fast, unfolding every hour. The bud may have a bitter taste, but sweet will be the flower. Blind unbelief is sure to err and scan his work in vain. God is his own interpreter, and he will make it plain. Let's pray. Father, we are so grateful for this wonderful lesson in providence that we see in this entire book of Ruth, but the first chapter in particular. Lord, I pray especially for those of us here gathered that are dealing still with great pain over 
some personal tragedy or loss in their life. Lord, I pray for the greater church. As I think of our group here and the tragedies we have maybe dealt with personally, I think of the common existence of our brothers and sisters across this globe who know very little other than suffering. Lord, we thank you for the blessings we have here, and we lift our prayer on their behalf for their comfort. At the same time, Lord, we have dealt with real things, every one of us. We want you to have glory, Lord. At the same time, we are honest with you as we pour out our hearts towards you. And we thank you for your word that comes to us at a moment where we need a proper outlook. I pray, Lord, that this would be used to comfort your people as we trust in you and in your way. Pray this for the glory of Jesus. In his name, amen.